gotta pay the tab. You, you gotta, gotta pay, pay the, the tab. tab. Hi, I'm Tony Tolbert. And I'm Adam Rudinsky. Welcome to Pay the Tab, where we make the case for reparations, one story at a time. Each episode, we expose the story of racial injustice. Then we explore creative ways to make it right. It's been long enough, America. It's time to pay the tab. It seems like one of the biggest obstacles to reparations is white people's secret fear of giving up all that we have. Like if everything is fair and just in our society and we really have to reckon with the past, that must mean that we're giving up our white privilege and all of its perks, you know, and, and life as we know it will be gone. Mm-hmm. There's an amazing depiction of this on the show Atlanta, which I think is the best show on TV. It's on season three, episode four, and it's the story of this average normal white guy who basically gets caught up in a lawsuit for reparations. And without spoiling too much, his life is never the same. So we encourage everybody to check out that episode. It it probably should be required viewing for this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That episode of Atlanta blew me away. I'd heard about it before I actually watched it. Uh, But very um, thought-provoking in a few different ways. But Adam, to your point of a lot of white people having feeling like they need to cling on to what's what's theirs and, and really having a hard time seeing what a different world might look like if they were to let go of some of that. We have a guest with us today who in real life took a dive into the deep end of individual reparations. And she's here to tell us that the water is fine. Morgan Curtis is a young white woman who's making reparations in her own special way. Her story's fascinating. So in a nutshell, Morgan inherited a huge sum of money she realized that it was rooted in a very foul family legacy Mm. and decided to give it all away to support African-American and Native American causes. Morgan works at the intersection of personal transformation, community building, ancestral healing, and social change. Um, And as part of that, she coaches other wealthy people who are interested in redistributing their wealth. Uh, She's pursuing a master's degree at Harvard Divinity School And there she focuses on the spiritual dimension of reparations work. Morgan Curtis, welcome to Pay the Tab. We are super thrilled to have you here today with us. Thanks for for taking some time to to be with us in conversation today. Mm, Really excited to be with you. Thank you. So Morgan, why don't we jump right in here? So you are part of a new movement, really, of young white people who come from wealthy families who are apparently giving their money away. So uh, we want to we talk to you about that and maybe start with what got you going on that path? Like what got you started in that process? And maybe you can start with a little bit of your family background as well. Absolutely. Um, so I was born and raised in London, England. I was raised with a lot of material comfort and privileges. Um, And I was raised with gratitude for those, but very few questions about where they came from or what Mm. it took for us to live so comfortably in a world that is deeply unequal. But it was really when I came to college, I was 
part of starting a fossil fuel divestment campaign at my university. And it was in that campaign when I started to learn more deeply about economics, about how some of the yeah environmental devastation that I had felt as a small child was deeply connected to the way our system operates and the way certain people invest in that. And it was really young, my fellow young activists of color who began to educate me about the deeper roots of the climate crisis. I began to get taught about this is just the latest symptom of colonialism, of white supremacy, of an economic system that extracts from land and labor for the benefit of the few. Mm-hmm. And I had been raised in a family that was really proud of our early American history. There were portraits of ancestors on the wall and family silver under the stairs. And When you say this, portraits, you mean like painting portraits? Yeah, like old ancestors from the Mm. 1800s in big frames Mm. and so when i started hearing about colonialism i was like oh that's that's my family that's our story Mm. that's our history and i also was you know advocating for divestment and that got me thinking wait a second both of my grandfathers were investment bankers that kind of sounds like the opposite of divestment pretty much yeah pretty much Mm -hmm. (laughs) started Hmm. looking at how how am i directly implicated how are my family participating in these systems that i'm asking this institution to question you mentioned um finding out about both your grandfathers being investment bankers you said um and uh did you at some point when you were younger, also learn about other relatives. Um, I think you've mentioned, like, I think it was a great uncle who was uh, in the military or something. Yeah, there's a lot of different stories in my family. But hmm. yeah, I have a great, great, great uncle who um, was an investor and director of mining corporations, um, particularly that were extracting gold and silver in Central America in the 1800s. I have another ancestor who ran a sugar plantation in Cuba, also in the 1800s. Hmm. I have another ancestor who was a colonel and fought in the Black Hawk and Seminole Wars, the genocidal wars that removed indigenous people here in these lands. yeah, I as a little kid, I I think I started my ancestry.com account when I was 12 years old. I somehow mm. had this interest and my own grandfather he wrote his own obituary and in the first line he said Charles Buckley Curtis descended from first settlers of Stratford, Connecticut. Like right. for his wife, career, kids, that was the first mm. line of yeah. who he was. Mm-hmm. And It took me educating myself to find my way underneath some of these stories to be like, oh, what does it actually mean to be descended from some of the first families in the United States? It means 
direct implication in the foundational violence of this country. And ne- necessarily, right? I mean, like necessarily. Yeah. That's the story. Yeah. I think it was around age 20 or so when you first discovered this fund that had been set up for you. Is, is that right? So I was that divestment organizer and um, I ran a old car on biodiesel and I, I it broke down and I sold it and I said, Dad, it was your car. Where should I put your $1,500? And he said, oh, you can keep it, but only if you invest in the stock market. And I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> but my analysis at the time, I was like, okay, I guess I'll buy some solar panel companies. And so I set myself up an investment account. And when I logged into it with my social security number and my information, there was $350,000 already in the account. Wow. Bam. Yeah. And it was invested in some of those same corporations that I was campaigning against. Mm. Big moment of shock for me. I like hit refresh, like, like what is going on here? I called my dad right away and he mm-hmm. was like, oh no, you weren't supposed to know about that. Mm. Was mm. And I was very clear that I wanted to get that out of initially the fossil fuel industry and then the stock market and not that long after that, I was also pretty clear I wanted to give this money away. Hmm. That started from this place of just like, this is dirty. Like, I don't want to touch this. I want to get this away from me. But it was, yeah, as I got more deeply educated by the social movement spaces that I was finding myself in, I began to understand, oh, I have a particular responsibility with this money that comes from this family history that we've been talking about. This isn't just about getting it away from me, mm-hmm. but it's actually about deliberately putting it back towards the communities that my family has stolen and taken and extracted from. So I guess the the, the next question is, what did you do next when you, you <laughs> sort of had these realizations of not very good vibes uh, from learning about the fund? And the degree of wealth that was now in your name, right? Uh, yeah. What was your what was your first step on the next uh, the next chapter of this journey? Um, my first step was kind of becoming a like one woman campaign tornado targeting my dad, mm. which <laughs> um, didn't go very well. <laughs> um, I think in that time when I was really learning to look to this history, it was. A period of taking on a lot of shame, taking on a lot of like self-hatred of mm-hmm. being like, oh, like I'm part of a family and part of a system and carrying identities that have been like constituted through violence. And mm. like that is eating away at me. Mm-hmm. And I threw that a lot at my dad and it was a difficult chapter for us. And the first thing that happened was like some walls going up between me and that money because I was pretty clearly being like, I want to give it all away. And that was (laughs) not working for him. Um, And so I, yeah, I spent some years um, throwing myself more deeply into social movements and organizing work, finding myself... um, 
doing a lot of work around indigenous solidarity and ending up living in an intentional community in Oakland, California, where mm-hmm. I have privilege and just the honor of a lifetime to live with 35 people in a multiracial cross-class community. And particularly some of my Black elders there really saying to me, like, uh, you need to be doing the work with your own people. Like, hmm. we get that you like want to be in this struggle for justice, but mm-hmm. your piece of it is stopping your people from doing the harm that's still going on and starting to try and build a culture that you can stand for something else. And as your, your own people's other white people, other mm-hmm. wealthy white people, or what, what, how, how did you interpret that? Either or both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, initially I was very resistant to that idea. Part mm. of that journey of being with the shame, being with the self-hatred was like, I put a lot of energy into getting far away from the world that I came from. I don't want to go back there. I don't like white <laughs> people. Like <laughs> that was kind of the sense of it that I found myself in. But it was a journey to figure out like, oh, I actually have to like love myself enough to believe that we could one day stand for something else and that Mm -hmm. there's a journey that we as white people and or wealthy people need to go on and it's work that we have to do with one another in accountability and in relationship with communities of color but there's work that we need to do to remember how to be human again Hmm. Um, so your your project or the blueprint for your project is you giving away 100% of your inherited wealth, right? And 50% of your future earnings. Is that right? Yeah. 50% of my present. Yeah. Ongoing commitment. And how did you land on, on those two pieces? Like how did you come up with that formula? So when I first started being able to move some of the inherited money, I found my way to an organization called Resource Generation, Mm -hmm. which is a national membership-based organization, multiracial, of young people with wealth and class privilege. And the mission of that organization is to redistribute money, land, and power from those of us in the top 10% of the U.S. economy towards communities that have had resources taken from them. Mm -hmm. And... In that organization, we talk about kind of the different stages of redistribution. There's like your average philanthropic approach, which is like, you know, we're going to continue to accumulate wealth and move 5% each year and we'll get richer and richer and retain control over this small amount that we're sharing. And then we talk about when you're moving like 10% of your assets, that's when you're beginning to spend down, when you're actually beginning to say like Mm -hmm. i'm willing to be less wealthy at the end of the year than i was when i started yes because i actually want to move control overall of who has wealth and power in this country away from me not just designate pieces of of my portfolio totally Mm -hmm. so and at the kind of end of that spectrum that we're organizing folks towards is this idea of return all the wealth Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Like what, 
yeah, what this moment and what this history demands of us is a radical reshaping of the American economy. Mm -hmm. And money is not enough to account for what harm has been done. There's so much that has been lost to white supremacy that can never be accounted for by money. And we have to move the money. And that requires of, yeah, institutions and individuals to be willing to make big, uncomfortable commitments. And for me, that felt like a clear choice to move all of my inherited wealth. So discovering that you owned a big chunk of money was one thing, mm-hmm. right? But then, as you alluded to, getting access to it was was a whole nother story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so can you, you know, give us some more of the details of the challenges that you faced and how that, how that played out? Yeah. Um, yeah. So for me, the, the situation was that my father essentially had control over the money. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of families with wealth create structures like that where the power is retained by the older generations, sometimes even in perpetuity. I've had mm-hmm. clients and friends who, when they received a trust fund on their 21st birthday, it came with a letter from their great-great-grandfather who'd been mm-hmm. dead a long time telling them what to do with it. Damn. So there's, yeah, structural institutional ways that are set up to keep wealth in wealthy families. And, and and those were not suggestions. Those were, were commands, basically? Yeah, quite often they're like legal stipulations that can't be, Damn, that are right. very difficult to break out okay. of. Um, right. My situation was not that. Mm-hmm. Mine was more um, just a relational journey of getting to the point where my dad was um, willing to let me move in this way. So you sort of wore him down over time. <laughs> um, that's probably a good way. Of that's one it. way to put it, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sounds like it was pretty, pretty heavy, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's it's had its ups and downs, and there's definitely been some hard points for our relationship, and some amazing moments where he's joined me in moving resources in certain mm-hmm. moments. So yeah. I'm grateful for him staying with me. Yeah, I mean, this is the personal side, but just through our work on this podcast on reparations, it's made me think about the repair work that I, you know, need to do in in, in my own life, right? And then, what did you, what did you do? So once you had control of your account, like walk us through what was what were the next you know steps? How did that unfold? Yeah, so the commitment I made was to move about a third of the resources to. Black liberation work to mm-hmm. organizing and social movements and land projects that are building self-determination and political power for Black people. About a third of the resources to um, Indigenous organizing land return work and those two commitments arising directly out of my family history and where I'm seeing that I have reparative debt too and the other third of the resources i've moved to yeah mutual aid to Mm -hmm. community to 
um, folks in my life, adjacent to my life, um, yeah, such that I'm able to be a person in community that can respond to immediate needs and share this financial privilege that I unjustly have. Um, and kind of within those categories, there's been kind of two focuses. One being where can I move resources to places where the power over where they ultimately go is redistributed. So an example of that is moving money to the Movement for Black Lives, the national movement formation, resourcing Black-led work all over the country. Mm-hmm. So that's been one part of my focus is, yeah, how how do I not be the one that decides where these resources go? Right. Um, and then at the same time, and, knowing... And, 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 and let me jump in, Morgan. Is that because yeah. you, don't, you don't want the responsibility or because it's not your, that's not your part to play? It's not my part to play. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at the same time, I know that if that's all I did, that there's also there's a way that lets me off the hook of needing to build accountable relationships where I'm moving resources that are requiring me to like get down in it with people and be like, okay, I'm going to give you money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're going to talk about yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And to have that, yeah, transformative experience of yeah, moving resources to individual projects and people. So it's been a both and for me of like, where am I redistributing power and where am I also being willing to show up as my full self without any mediation? Mm -hmm. I I think I saw you said somewhere also that the, your targeting of places to give were also geographical places where your ancestors had made money uh, off of the either indigenous people or enslaved people or, or, or those locations. Is that right as well? Yeah. So yeah, I've focused a lot of my resource moving in the Northeast, which is where my family history was, has mostly been also in California because that's where I live now, where I'm currently a settler on, I live on Lisha and Ohlone lands in the Bay area. Um, and then also in the Southeast where I mentioned my ancestor who fought in the Seminole War. Um, so I've been moving resources, particularly to a group of Muscogee people who've returned to the homelands that they were displaced from. Hmm. Right. You said earlier when you when you first discovered the account some years before that, that there was, I think, 350,000 uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the account. And over the years after that, when you didn't yet have control and access, and yeah, I, I assume that that sort of compounded and increased a bit. So what, just so we have an idea, when you finally were able to start redistributing the, this wealth, how much was in there? I think when all's said and done, I will have been able to move about $600,000. Wow. Yeah. That's, a good, that's a good chunk of money. Yeah. Yeah, that can do some, some work. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. that's the hope. And and just because we're super nosy like this and trying to get up in your business, um, yeah. how much? Mu- so how much is left to distribute? So I have about um, nineteen thousand dollars in the bank that's committed to go out, mm-hmm. um, and then I have a few different chunks of money that are in kind of solidarity economy investments. Cool. Is it is it weird or uncomfortable or off putting when when folks ask you questions like that? <laughs> I think I'm getting used to it at this point. Yeah. 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 I, I would imagine. I wonder how I'd react to that. I might be like, 
none of your damn business. But right. but uh, but that's part part of it too. Is that people want to want to know, right? And that, and that's yeah. a very powerful aspect. We're not talking about a you know ten thousand or fifty thousand or a hundred thousand. This is you know like some serious serious change. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I notice it's also that money, like you say, money is always a, a delicate subject, but but numbers sometimes is even more like to mm-hmm. put a number on things. Nobody ever wants to do that, right? No. Whether it's because of it being too much or too little or right. whatever, it's just very sensitive. Yeah. So, you know, we, we notice with reparations, um, it's, you know, you definitely have to go there. We have to start talking about right what, yeah, what, the, what the numbers are. And uh, yeah. that, that that's pretty awesome that you're just talking publicly about the whole process. It's a very valuable yeah. for people. Going back to your um, your coaching, mm-hmm. uh, what does that look like? Is it technical advice on how folks should redistribute their wealth? Is it supporting them through the emotions, you know, uh, of of that or some combination? Yeah. So I kind of got started on that when I was finding myself as someone that was willing to talk a little bit about coming from class privilege in social movement spaces. And I would tell that story and talk about like, yeah, this is why I'm here is because of the way my family is implicated in whatever struggle and campaign we're fighting for. And I was just having a lot of people come up to me in the hallway being like, I also have a trust fund and I've Mm, never mm -hmm. told anyone about it. And Mm. sometimes that being like someone who's been deeply involved with movement work for 20 years and has Mm. never told anyone that Mm, they secretly have money. Wow. Just right. Like the levels of, yeah, shame, guilt, and mm-hmm. isolation. Right. Um, and so that was happening to me often enough. And I was finding myself on phone calls often enough supporting people through that like mm. process sometimes of talking to someone for the first time about this situation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I, I, I think this might be my role. Somehow my role is to work with the activists with secret trust funds to move their <laughs> resources niche. into the movement. It's a right. very specific niche, but there's a lot of us. Wow. Who knew? Uh, Your people, right? Yeah. Wait, look a, 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 a quick side side note. Adam, are you holding out on me? Are you are you one of these folks? No trust fund. Sorry. We will have, uh, but, but it's interesting. I'll just say as a side note, um, and we'll, we'll get back to this in future episodes, but tracing one's family tree is, is interesting. And there's, there's one branch in particular of my family also from the Northeast that uh, is going to get some scrutiny. Uh, okay. Has, All right. Not before, Good. but uh, Let's bring it yeah. on. Yeah. And then there's also the external challenges of, like, I didn't get any financial education as a woman. That's a mm. really common one. Sure. Um, or, like, yeah, my trust fund has these legal barriers that I'm not able to move through. Mm-hmm. Or, like, I'm currently really in conflict with this member of my family, and I don't know how to move through that. So. Right. Let us know if you need a couple of lawyers for that, by the way. <laughs> oh, I actually have a spreadsheet called... Trust busting lawyers for wealth redistribution. No kidding. So Ooh, if, love any that. Lawyers, awesome. if any Trust lawyers busters. are listening that want to be on that recommendation list, <laughs> reach out. <laughs> we need those. We need a lot of those. And you being in divinity school now, is that a byproduct mm-hmm. of the, the work that you were doing or, or not necessarily? Yeah, straight out of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Most often when folks ask why I'm in divinity school, I say I'm studying the spiritual dimension of reparations work required of white descendants of colonizers and enslavers. And sometimes people are like, <laughs> after I say that. Right. 
Tony and I talk a lot about the need for full truth telling, you know, on an individual level and as a society, uh, especially mm-hmm. right before there can be any real shifting of our of our nation uh, on reparations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting that you've you kind of taken this credo of telling the truth 100 percent. Right. And you, you're looking deeply at the sources of your own wealth, your family's wealth and how to make it right and, and live your life more honestly. So that's it's pretty striking what you're doing. Thanks for saying that. I was raised in an education system that told me, like, get as much power as you can, and then maybe one day you'll be able to make a little bit of difference. Mm. And just understanding, like, no, change has always been led by the people closest to the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it is really important that we understand reparations as something requiring or needing to happen at a governmental institutional scale. Mm -hmm. And I think we can fall into that trap of thinking that change happens from the top down. Mm -hmm. And like, I I don't think, and what I've been invited not to, that reparations won't win at a big scale until it's won at small scales. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. like, as individuals, families, like universities, institutions, neighborhoods, towns, cities, states, schools, Like, be like, oh, we're actually going to take responsibility for returning resources because Mm -hmm. why would we wait? (laughs) Why would we wait? Yeah. So, So Morgan, in some ways, your story is a lot of white people's worst nightmare, right? (laughs) Sort of like giving everything away. um, And it sounds like that was part of the the process with your dad. But why do you think that uh, we have such a problem seeing outside our narrow boxes of fear and clinging and, you know, clinging hard to to the white privilege, right? And all the benefits and all the money. And why why is this such a, uh, why is this so triggering, that, that this, this topic? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, it's funny. I, a while ago, there was a story written about me where the journalist she said morgan curtis's life story is like the american dream in reverse (laughs) (laughs) there you go (laughs) that's funny in other words a nightmare (laughs) in other words a nightmare but yeah i mean we're we are living in very unstable times like i think even when people can't understand it or can't take it in intellectually or politically we can feel in our bodies that like this is a very treacherous moment on the history of this planet Mm. and the history of humanity. And like that's, I'm talking about climate change. I'm talking about wealth inequality. I'm Mm -hmm. talking about racial violence. I'm talking about, yeah, a colonial project in the United States that's 400 years deep, but very uncertain. And what we've been told and this is many of us that speaking for white people it was like what we've been told is what keeps us safe in that system is mm. money and power mm-hmm. and we can feel that it's unsafe we built it to be unsafe and it's also unsafe for us and as we try and gain safety as we try and grab at safety like we are actually creating systemically ever more unsafe Mm -hmm. situations for all of us. And so, yeah, I feel like part of my work is helping people to see, helping myself to see, like when we're talking about reparations, we're talking about arriving to a system in which everyone can thrive. Like we're talking about building a 
world in which everyone has like the self-determination and safety and ability to like live peacefully and healthily. And we simply cannot get there without taking responsibility for Mm. the past and drastically shifting power and resources. But it's in, I believe it is in white people's self-interest to do that. It's not like we're doing it for ourselves, but we have to understand that we need a world that reparations will build as Mm. well. Absolutely. Yeah. So obviously lots of good things have come about from what you've done, right? What you've put in motion. Um, and you can share some of that, you know, you know, for sure. But we also have to imagine that you, there've been some critiques and some pushback. Um, you've spoken about an interaction with uh, a black man who confronted you about who gets to heal first, right? Who has the right Mm -hmm. to heal from racial violence and oppression first. Can you share what he told you and how you responded? Yeah. Um, this was a fellow student in my time here in graduate school, and I was sharing some of this story and presenting about my work. And, um, yeah, he spoke up and said, like, why do you get to heal first? And I heard the pain in that question and took a deep breath and said, like, my my only role in your healing is to help my people stop hurting you Mm -hmm. and to make sure that like there is the space and the resources and the distance from us such that your community gets to heal. And I've learned that I'm not supposed to step into your healing work more than that. And Mm. also that, our healing is connected Mm -hmm. because it's not ultimately true that we are like separate people. Like my healing is your healing is our healing and we can't get where we need to go without any of these being part of the picture. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, Guilt obviously is caught up in this in, 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 in some form or fashion. Right. Um, and you know, no, you've shared that your, that the guilt is not rooted in some sense of punishment or some grand notion of self-sacrifice, right. But more from a desire to, to heal yourself as, 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 as we were talking about, if I, if I, if I understood that, right. Can you help us help us, you know, break that down? Yeah. I think guilt and shame are a necessary part of the journey for white people right now. I think if we're not feeling some of that, we're not looking closely enough at what's Mm. happening and what has been happening. Mm -hmm. I think of guilt as a natural, empathic, human response to benefiting from the suffering of others. And... It's also not where we stop. And I think guilt and shame can freeze people, but there's also the opportunity when we don't hold it alone, when we lean towards others who are having the same experience Mm -hmm. and we Mm -hmm. say, we're going to do something about this, that it 
can become a generative source of motivation and energy. Yeah. And that on some level, I think what we're most ashamed of isn't what we've done, but what we are yet to do. Mm-hmm. Or what we're not doing. Mm-hmm. What we're not doing right now. Mm-hmm. And so the yeah, the most effective medicine I've seen for guilt and shame is getting something done. Action. Right? Yeah, be, be Action. about it. Be about it. Yeah you, yeah, you shared a really beautiful thought um, on this whole notion of responding to guilt. And, you, you know, you said, a- ask, you know, guilt, like, where are you taking me? Mm-hmm. And that, that there's a way to and through it, not not just mm-hmm. away from it. Um, and I yeah. thought that was just a really powerful way to to envision the role that guilt and shame might play in, in any of our lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any um, recommendations just right offhand for our listeners um, uh, of any background, maybe particularly the white folks, but but not necessarily just that, just for people who may not really know where to start and maybe they don't have a trust fund, maybe they do, but uh, who want to, you know, get involved on, on the front of reparations. Uh, do, do you have any words for those people? Yeah. So the most important thing is to not do it alone. So I want to sh- there are some like communities for folks to step into and get involved with for anyone that's been listening that does have financial resources, privilege as part of your story. Definitely recommend resource generation for young people interested in this work. Another community called Solidaire, intergenerational community for folks with wealth looking to resource movements for liberation. Um, more broadly, there's coming to the table, taking America beyond the legacy of enslavement, national chapter-based organization of white folks and black folks coming together to be in healing and reparative dialogue. Um, there's reparationsforslavery.com as an incredible portal, educational platform, um, place to get involved. Um so yeah, don't don't mm-hmm. go it alone, right. listeners out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Find the people in your Absolutely. region or through right. the Zoom webs. Like, yeah, we're not in it alone at this time. So I have one final question. I'm, I'm actually going to cheat and, and combine two questions, but uh, but they're, they're connected. Um, first part is the, the role that truth telling plays in your work. It seems to be very near the center of, of your work. It's like telling like. The, the real story, the, the whole story. Um, and also as it connects to your, your, your family legacy, your, your ancestors, you know, I, I read, you said that the work that you're doing is not designed to disrespect, re- disrespect them, but actually as a way to heal them and, and, and change their legacy, right. By the work that, that you're doing. Can you, you know, break that down for us and, you know, elaborate a little bit, please. Yeah. Yeah. When I first started doing this work, there was this sense, my dad would call it searching for sin was like what I was doing in the family tree. And he'd be mm-hmm. like, what are you like, what are you doing to the ancestors? Digging up dirt. <laughs> and mm-hmm. what I feel so clearly is that like my ancestors are collective national ancestral story, like doesn't want to end in violence and separation and like, unraveling like Mm. there's a different legacy that's possible like we can shift this story 
towards healing, towards repair. And I feel deeply that at least some of my ancestors are with me and that are not going to rest easy until the things that they were not able to put right in their lifetime out of their actions Mm -hmm. get shifted here and now. Mm. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, Morgan, we, um, we're not surprised, but uh, really, really thoughtful um, insights that you shared and just powerful mm. observations and, and reflections uh, and inspiration for folks, mm. um, white, black, brown, native to, you know, do what, what we can with what we have, where, where we are right now. So we just want to um, honor and uplift you and, and, and thank you and tell you how much we appreciate you making time uh, for us on Pay the Tab. Mm. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah, I'm just really grateful y'all are doing this. Thank you for creating this conversation and yeah, bringing your own stories and resources and communities and people to bear. That's powerful to see. Thank you again, Morgan, and keep keep doing what you're doing. Likewise. That was a whole a whole lot that that Morgan went into, right? A lot yes. of just deep sharing, powerful um, observations and connections that, you know, she's making between her family history, uh, the work that she's doing and the future that she wants to see. Right. Yeah. Super open about everything. huh? Very, very, very open, very thoughtful and, and deliberate about it. Yeah. One interesting fact that we didn't really get into in the interview was the history of um, actual enslavers in Morgan's family. Right. Mm hmm. Um, so particularly in the northern parts of the U.S., in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and New York City, um, you know, part of Morgan's you know an- ancestral history is that there were some folks who had enslaved people. Right. Um, and a lot, a lot of people forget that there was a whole lot of slavery in the northern states, especially going back into like the 1700s and stuff. Yeah. If you're a white American with old money in your family, there are definitely some major skeletons in your closet. Mm-hmm. There's exploitation. There's suffering. And always a very close connection to slavery. It's undeniable. We can't get get away from the fact that America's wealth was largely derived from the institution of slavery. That's right. A lot of people, including Morgan's father, would Mm -hmm. question the validity, the sanity of giving away your money that was saved up, particularly saved up by your parents, say for a college fund or for a deposit on a home. You know, and, and they might say, look, you know, first and foremost, we need to look after ourselves, right? Family first. That's right. That's what a lot of people say, for sure. And that philosophy sort of, you know, negates the fact that all people are, are connected, right? We're all related in some form or fashion. Um, and that sometimes, many times we get caught up in these, um, you know, fictitious walls and boundaries that we erect to d- divide and separate uh, right. without, without really tapping into our common humanity. That's right. And it's it's difficult work, as we can see with, uh, you know, the process that, that she went through in her own family. I think a lot of white people find it hard to think about messing in any way with all the spoils and advantages of our white privilege. Right. Mm-hmm. And Morgan's story really opens up your mind to the possibilities. What does it look like to to let that go? It's interesting because it's another theme from that episode of Atlanta, which is basically giving the message that you know what, you guys, it's going to be okay. Uh, white people can lose a whole lot of that white privilege and still, um, you know, you're going to be fine. Yeah. And, and sometimes we get faked out into believing that there's a, 
uh, a limit to um, what's available, right? Mm. That uh, we get um, divided and separated and the folks at the very top of the pyramid like to pit, you know, us against each other, right? And, right. Be- and believe that it's a zero sum game that, you know, um, in order for me to get more, someone else has to get less that, you know, uh, we can't all sort of rise, r- rise, rise together. And, you know, we think, you know, Morgan's doing a really good job of re um, reimagining that paradigm and understanding that we all are connected and that we all rise, we all rise together. That's right. We can only rise when we get together. Heather McGee has a great book on that subject, and she talks about the solidarity dividend and mm. all the different stories throughout history where people from different groups get together and basically fight the power together. That's that's how you get results. Adam, we can imagine that there are some folks listening who might be wondering, like, is, is this is this really the answer? Right. Are we really mm. going to rely on rich, guilt ridden white folks uh, to you know help solve the reparations equation? Um, that that can't be that can't be the sum total of the answer, right? Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, no one is is saying that this is the answer. It definitely can't be the only thing going on, but it can definitely be a part. You know, taking direct action is always a good thing if you're taking it in the right direction, and pushing the conversation forward. You know, she's been speaking out publicly and influencing people, and trying to to help others to do the same thing. So that that definitely never hurts. Giving away the the money in the way that Morgan is doing it is a legit way to go for sure. Uh, but it seems like the equally as important is the, the owning up, right? Right. The, the reckoning, the, the truth telling uh, that there's power in talking about the shit that we don't really want to talk about. Right. right. And there's, there's a lot of value in, you know, fully disclosing, right. Putting some names to it, putting some numbers on it, there you and go. really striking up conversations about like some shit that actually happened. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, th- that's where a lot of people don't want to go. And another thing we should remember is that, you know, people who are making individual reparations never lets the government off the hook, right. As we've talked about before, the massive harms to black and indigenous people in North America are rooted in much bigger forces at the national level. So mm-hmm. all levels of government, federal, state, and local, they all need to be held responsible and they need to make reparations happen, which when, when it comes down to it, right, that really means all of us together as a country need, need to be in this. You know, a lot of folks have great ideas of how to create change. Um, and, but many times for, for, for a lot of us, those ideas stay in our heads, right? And we don't translate them into action either because um, life gets in the way or you know, we're um, afraid, Mm -hmm. right? Or we don't think that we might be successful. Um, So, uh, you know, one one of the many reasons why we really appreciate what Morgan is doing is that she's actually doing the damn thing. Yeah, that's right. You know, she came up with an idea and put it in motion. Um, Sure, not knowing exactly how it was going to play out, but had confidence and faith that this was the right thing for her to do with her resources in in her life. Yeah. so, you know, we, we encourage all listeners to, you know, give some thought to what, where, what's the reparatory work that you can take on that you're willing to take, to take on. So if you are inspired to take some action in your own life, consider what, you know, some of the things that you might be able to do. That's right. And if you're somebody who has some wealth in your family background, or if you just have wealth, period, and you want to put it towards uh, some meaningful causes, um, you can check out this group, Resource Generation. That's one of the groups that Morgan works with, and we'll have their information mm-hmm. in the show notes along with some other resources like that. Yeah. And, and if you, you know, 
aren't loaded and, and, and contributing financially isn't the way for you to make repair. Think about what talent you might have that could be a contribution. You know, maybe you have marketing expertise or organizing skills or some technical ability. Think about how you might be able to contribute those talents to help create a more uh, equitable world, right? To, to make reparations in your own sphere, um, in your own way. So we'll close out with a passage from uh, Morgan's writings that we think is a fitting way to, to conclude this episode. If white supremacy is to end in this country, its own children must turn around and face its history saying, yes, those are our people. We are them and they are us. We did this and now we will work to undo it. Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining us on Pay the Tab. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please subscribe to our podcast. And if you like what we're putting down, share it with your family and friends. And please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. This is the best way you can help us to get the word out with this show. So please check that out and give us some love. Thanks for listening. Keep coming back to Pay the Tab. Time to pay, pay the dab.